Lord, um, we are just so excited to uh, learn more about you this evening, Lord, as we dive into ancient theology, historical theology, Lord, just um, how you have spoken to uh, just these people who were trying to learn more about you, Lord, and um, we are going to try to do the same thing tonight, just learn more about you and understand who you are through the pages of history and how you have spoken to other men throughout time, Lord, and um, we just look forward to that and ask that you guide us and that you speak through me tonight, and that we just have a great time. Amen. All right. So, historical theology. What is historical theology? Well, um, it was too easy to just try to cover one type of theology, eschatology, or uh, even when we drew in like Catholicism, that's too small of a topic. Um, tonight we are covering every area of theology as it has been spoken about by every theologian for the past 2,000 years. So just a little subject, uh, so we will be going quickly. <laughs> Um, don't worry, we're just going to focus on the first 600 years, though. Um, no, but seriously, I mean, we just sang that song, right? Um, the words are, uh, if what I've heard of is true of you, there aren't enough words to describe you. And basically, we're looking at 600 years of men who are just trying to describe our amazing God, and it's really cool stuff. Um, yeah, so Moody's definition of theology uh, of historical theology, excuse me, um, is coming up. The unfolding of Christian theology throughout the centuries. So it's just, uh, like I said, it's every area of theology as it's changed and evolved for 2,000 years. And then, uh, so why do we study this? Why do we want to look at it? Well, um, the, you've, you've heard the, the phrase, right? Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Well, if those who don't study heresies are doomed to repeat them. So we're going to look at a lot of heresies that people spouted, and then more importantly, really, is the church's reaction to those heresies and what they did about it and, uh, and how it changed the church forever from that moment on. Um, right, and it's just, it's, that's as beneficial to know about the beginning of Christian doctrine, how it's evolved, how it has sometimes deviated from biblical truth. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so we're going to jump right into this. Uh, so it's historical theology is divided into uh, four periods of history. You start with ancient theology. That's the first century to 590. That's what we're covering tonight. The next section is medieval theology. It goes from 590 to 1517, and that's what Chris will be covering next month. And then there's Reformation theology, which goes from 1517 to 1750, and that'll be Tim. And then you have modern theology, which I guess isn't important because nobody's covering it. Huh, Tom? No, uh, we cover that in all the other theology classes. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's basically historical theology. That's the introduction, and we're just going to jump straight into ancient theology. And so the ancient theology, the time period, as I said, first century AD to 590, um, which is, again, divided even further into time periods. You have the age of Jesus and the apostles, which is just the birth of Christ, to the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in AD 70. Then you have the age of Catholic Christianity, that is lowercase c, Catholic, universal, meaning universal, not like the Catholic Church. Um, and that's named after the first Christians who referred to Christianity as Catholic, being universal, because it was the uh, rapidly expanding true faith that followed Jesus' teaching. Um, and that's where 
ancient theology starts is actually at the end of um, the, the apostles. So it's what the other people wrote after the apostles. Um, and uh, so then within there, you have different people, right? So you have, and they've been called different names, but basically you have uh, the apostolic fathers first, and then you have the apologists, and then you have the church fathers, and, um, and then the day that Constantine, and you've probably heard of Constantine, Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity, that marks the beginning of the next age, which is the, na- the age of the Christian Roman Empire, which is 312 to 590. And that's, um, under there you have the Nicene and the post-Nicene fathers. Uh, and that went until the end of the Roman Empire and the transition into the Christian Middle Ages. So what are we going to cover? Uh, so some really important questions that come up in just that first 590 years. What's the, what's the deal with creeds, right? So you've all heard, well, maybe hopefully some of you have heard of like the Nicene Creed, um, that kind of thing. We're going to talk about that. And uh, like some people, some churches make a big deal about the creeds still to this day, right? Uh, they recite them during their services. Number two, uh, when and how was the canon of scripture decided? That was in that first 500-year period. It's really interesting to study and how they chose the books that they chose. And um, we're going to look into that. And then what did the first theologians write about salvation, the nature of Christ, the unity of the Trinity, church doctrine, and the end times? We're going to look at a lot about what these guys were saying after reading the Gospels and hearing from the apostles. and um, What did they have to say? So, first period, we're going to talk about the Apostolic Fathers and the Apologists. These are, it was the first group of guys. Um, so the Apostolic Fathers were the church leaders who were, the, the definition basically, they're the church leaders who were still alive during the lives of the Apostles. So people who were born before 70 A.D., and then they lived after that, obviously. Um, and within that group, you have Clement of Rome, and you have Ignatius, and Papias, and Polycarp, and then um, also during this time, you had uh, the Didache, Didache, something like that, uh, which means um, teaching. It's just the word means teaching, but it was also known as the teaching of the 12 apostles. It was just a, a very well-known book. That had a lot of teaching in it. And then you also have the apologists. Uh, so the apologists, right? So Christianity was new right at the beginning, obviously. Uh, it was misunderstood by many, including the Roman uh, officials uh, who executed the judgment and often persecuted these so-called Christians, right? So um, the Jews were basically tolerated by Rome because uh, they, um, they kind of kept to themselves. Uh, and at first, Christians seemed like just another offshoot of Judaism, so they were basically left alone too, but uh, then the Jews kind of made it clear that they were not like the Christians at all, um, and then Rome kind of turned on the Christians. Um, and Christians weren't really exactly like the Jews, obviously, because the Jews kept to themselves, um, but the Christians refused to worship the emperor and told everyone else not to worship the emperor, worship the emperor and that got Rome's attention. Um, so then you have within this period of the apologists, the period from 90 to 138, and that area, that time saw heavy persecution. So you had these Gentile Christians who were writing apologies in defense of Christianity. Um, and basically they defended Christianity against false accusations of atheism, cannibalism, incest, and other inaccurate charges. Uh, number two, they attacked paganism 
immorality and inaccurate interpretations of the Old Testament that were corrected by Christ. And then number three, they built persuasive arguments around fulfilled prophecy and miracles. Uh, one of the most well-known apologists you've probably heard of, Justin Martyr, uh, his first apology was written to Emperor Antoninus Pius, Pius, Antoninus Pius, who ruled from 138 to 161. And um, I think it seems like because of his apology that he wrote to him, like just after that when Emperor Antoninus became emperor in 138, the persecution subsided, and he was actually known as one of the really good five good emperors. If you look up Rome history, Roman history, there are five good emperors, and he was one of them. Um, other apologists that we know about are um, Tatian, Theophilus, and Tertullian, which is also another well-known guy. Um, okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to go through a lot of, all like a bunch of areas of theology based on what these guys wrote, so the apostolic fathers and the apologists. So first we're going to start with Bibliology. Um, basically, they were they recognized the authority of Scripture very much. So they have extensive quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, and of, oftentimes like alluding to the authority of Scripture. Uh, for example, so Clement of Rome, one of those first apostolic fathers we talked about, um, he begins his first epistle to the church in Corinth by praising them for their past deeds. Kind of familiar, and Paul did something similar, right? Uh, uh, but in chapter 2 of that letter, he praises them for being more willing to give than to receive, right? alluding to Acts 20.35, uh, which says it's more better to, more blessed to give than to receive. Uh, he says, uh, quote, uh, you never grudged any act of kindness, being ready to every good work, quoting Titus 3.1, um, which says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And he also uh, finishes that chapter uh, with saying, the commandments and ordinance of the Lord were written upon the tablets of your heart, referencing Proverbs 7.3. Uh, but uh, the church of Corinth had obviously fallen at this time because then he quickly turns around and rebukes them. Uh, and he cites Deuteronomy 32.15 when he says that. And he says, uh, every kind of honor and happiness was bestowed upon you and then was fulfilled that which is written, my beloved ate and drank and was enlarged and became fat and kicked. That is, they kicked against the goads. And as uh, Deuteronomy 32.15 finishes, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook, forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. So basically they, they basked in the grace of God, got too comfortable, and then fell back into sin. Um, but then Clement goes on in chapter 4 to use uh, just a ton of Old, Tem Old Testament examples of uh, where envy caused separation from God, including Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, Jacob and Esau from Genesis 25, and Aaron and Miriam from Numbers 12, and Dathan and Abiram from Numbers 16. Uh, and then the extensive quoting of Scripture goes on. Chapter 8 quotes Ezekiel and Isaiah calling for repentance. Chapters 9 through 12 give examples of the obedient saints from the Old Testament, including Abraham, Lot, and Rahab. Uh, in chapter 53, he refers to the sacred Scriptures and the oracles of God. Um, just again, recognizing the authority of Scripture. Um, jumping ahead to the apologist Justin Martyr, in his first apology, chapters 31 through 53, uh, extensively quote Old Testament passages and uh, documenting the fulfilled prophecies. Um, and then in chapter 36 specifically, he writes, but when you hear the utterances of the prophets spoken as it were personally, you must not suppose that they were spoken by the inspired themselves, 
but by the divine word who moved them, attributing the writing of the prophets to the Lagos, right? And the, uh, so the Lagos is the, the word of God, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the Greek word Lagos is um, often referred to by these Old Testament, or these, not Old Testament, by, um, by the theologians in the beginning as just the word of God. Is, it's called the Lagos. That's why we call it that. Okay, so that's bibliology. Just a very small sample. Moving right along. Theology proper. Uh, the study of God, right? So the apostolic fathers, uh, they showed a belief in the Trinity. They said that God is creator and master. Um, Ignatius, in his epistle to the Philadelphians, uh, chapter 4 is the, uh, the longer version. It says, since also there is but one unbegotten being, God, even the Father, and only and one only begotten Son, God, the Word and man, and one comforter, the Spirit of truth. Right. So just an obvious reference to the Trinity and a belief in the Trinity. Um, the apologists, um, yeah, so when, but then when you get to the apologists, uh, something that's interesting is that uh, one of the things Christians were accused of by the Romans was atheism because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, so they were called atheists. But Justin Martyr responds to those accusations in his first apology in chapters 4 and 5. He highlights and explains the charge against them, referring multiple times to the Greek gods as demons. Um, we're not going to go into Greek mythology, but their gods were not good. Uh, and then in chapter 6, he writes, Hence we are called atheists, and we confess that we are atheists, so far as gods of this sort are concerned, but not with respect to the most true God, the father of righteousness and temperance and other virtues, who is free from all impurity. So here we see a description of God as the most true God and the father of righteousness and temperance and other virtues and free from all impurity. Later in chapter 13, he actually describes the Trinity in ranks, ranking them, saying, um, uh, quote is, and that we reasonably worship him, Jesus, having learned that he is the son of the true God himself and holding him in the second place, and the prophetic spirit in the third we will prove, for they proclaim our madness to consist in this, that we give to a crucified man a place second to the unchangeable and eternal God, the creator of all. So again, unchangeable, eternal, creator of all, definitions of God from Justin Martyr. Um, other writers refer to him as a god of love. Athenagoras, which we didn't even talk about, he describes a single triune god. And that's theology proper. Jumping on to Christo Christology. Uh, this is just going to be an intro to Christology, though, because um, we're going to go into it more later. But again, uh, so going back to Ignatius, one of the um, uh, apostolic fathers, he writes that Jesus is God. Jesus indwells the believer. Jesus is the knowledge of God. He is with the Father before the worlds. Jesus is the Son. Uh, for, just for example, in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3, uh, he writes, For even Jesus Christ, our inseparable life, inseparable life is the manifested will of the Father. So just calling Jesus the will of the Father. And then in chapter 7, same letter, he writes, There is one physician who is possessed both of flesh and spirit, both made and not made, God existing in flesh, true life in death, both of Mary and of God, first passable and then impassable, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And just because I didn't know what that word meant, I had to look it up. I'll let you know passable means capable of suffering. So he was first capable of suffering and then incapable. Okay, so that's Ignatius. Now Clement, uh, he declares Jesus as being sent forth from God and he describes him as the scepter of the majesty of God. 
in his uh, first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 16. Uh, Polycarp, uh, so we don't have much written from Polycarp that has survived this long, um, but what we do have is his epistle to the Philippians, and um, in that he affirms Jesus' humanity. In chapter 1 he writes, brings forth fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered even unto death. So again, just a reference to his ability to suffer. Um, And then we get to the apologists, and uh, they write that Christ was sent by God. He was rejected by Jews and believed on by Gentiles. He is eternal, not created. He's the mind and word of the Father. His work on the cross was the replacement for us, our justification. Uh, He writes in his second apology in chapter 6, And his Son, who alone is properly called Son, the Word, who also was with him and was begotten before the works, when at first he created and arranged all things by him, is called Christ, in reference to his being anointed and God's ordering all things through him. So there we see Justin Martyr describing that, acknowledging that Jesus was begotten before the works, um, that is like the works of creation, and that um, he was the one who created and arranged all things. Moving right along. Now we're on soteriology. Man, just burning through this. Okay. Uh, So, soteriology. Back to Clement. So the first guy we talked about writes in chapter 7 of his first epistle to the Corinthians. He says, let us look... Oh, so I guess I should summarize these. So soteriology is the study of salvation. Sorry, Bibliology is the study of the Bible. I should have wrote that down. Sorry about that. Christology is the study of Christ. Here we go. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, so Clement writes uh, in chapter 7, Let us look steadfastly in the, to the blood of Christ and see how precious that blood is to God, which having been shed for our salvation has set the grace of repentance before the whole world. Uh, so just the statement suggests from him that man has some part in his salvation. It also suggests an unlimited atonement. And um, later on in chapter 12, Clement also refers to Rahab's example saying uh, the scarlet thread that Rahab used to designate her house, uh, quote, made it manifest that redemption should flow through the blood of the Lord to all them that believe and hope in God. So he sees that as a prophetical reference to salvation. Um, So in general, the apostolic fathers stressed works as part of salvation, um, possibly too strongly because it kind of detracted from the grace of God, right? Um, but just uh, like a lot. Chapters 19 through 23 of uh, that letter Clement is writing, it's just all about ethics, um, which, of course, we know from James, right? Faith without works is dead, so he's not necessarily wrong, but they're, uh, they just think that he went a little too, they, all of them went a little too far in just describing the ethics, and they detract from the grace of God. Um, Ignatius writes that uh, faith in the blood of Christ procures salvation, Polycarp, again, references substitutionary atonement when he quotes 1 Peter 2.24 in chapter 8 of his epistle to the Philippians, saying, Let us then continually persevere in our hope and the earnestness and the earnest of our righteousness, which is Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And that who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that's from 1 Peter 2.24. And so he's quoting that there. Okay. Ecclesiology, study of the church. Um, so again, going back to the Apostolic Fathers, the church offices are very emphasized in their writings. Um, they, they, they wrote that uh, believers should submit to the elders and bishops, actually so far as um, 
uh, Ignatius in chapter 5 and 6 of his epistle to the Ephesians, he actually writes that um, he likens the believer's obedience to the bishop to Christ's obedience to the Father and the apostles to Christ. Uh, very heavy on the submitting to your elders and bishops. Um, the Didache, Didache that we mentioned earlier, that book uh, gives instructions on the Lord's Supper, basically saying that there should be prayers before and after, and um, it required baptism as a prerequisite to participating in the Lord's Supper. And then also he has um, words, that the, the Didache, Didache, man, that's a hard word to say. Um, it also has instructions on baptism, requiring that a person be baptized in the name of the triune God, and before being baptized, the baptizer and the one being baptized should fast. Interesting. And then it also goes into stuff on fasting, too. Um, on the apologists, um, so we'll look at Justin Martyr again. In his first apology in chapter 61, he correlates uh, Isaiah 1, 16 to 20 um, to baptism, um, which reads, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like red, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so Justin Martyr is basically saying that's talking about baptism. Um, and then later on in his first apology, chapters 65 and 66, he talks about the Eucharist. And um, in quoting Luke 22, 19 and 20, which is uh, just the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, and he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. And then likewise, the cup after the cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He looks at that and actually um, lays the, the foundation for transubstantiation, the Catholic thing where the flesh and the blood. It's like you're actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That's like the start of that is from Justin Martyr. Um, and I have this quote here. It says, For not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, has both had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise have we taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. So there you go. Moving right along. Eschatology. Okay, so there wasn't a really big focus right at the beginning on eschatology. Basically, they all believed in the future resurrection, just as Jesus taught it. Um, um, and then, but... There are some interesting things. So Papias, uh, most, most of his writings are lost, but um, we have a collection of these fragments of his writings. And in fragment number 14, we have an interesting quote from him. It says, The blessing thus foretold undoubtedly belongs to the times of the kingdom, when the righteous will rise from the dead and reign, when creation too, renewed and freed from bondage, will produce an abundance of food of all kinds. And focus on the food. I don't know. He really liked food, apparently. Um, from Irenaeus, 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 Irenaeus. Uh, he was a, a church father. Um, so a little later, so it's about the same time as the apologists, um, 115 to 202 is when he lived. Um, 
but he provides the most interesting thoughts into the millennial kingdom because um, in his collection of books called Against Heresies, it's five books, and they're all and then like 30 chapters in each one. It's a lot. But um, he says something really interesting in book four, chapter 33. Um, he refers to the writings of Papias. So Irenaeus, Irenaeus in writing about Papias, um, writes this, which is really interesting. So it says, the predicted blessing, therefore, um, well, okay, so the predicted blessing that he's talking about is the blessing from Genesis 13, 14 and 15, when Abraham is up on the mountain and God shows him all the land, north and east and south, and he will, you will have all this land. Um, he takes that and makes it about the millennium. So he's talking about this, the predicted blessing, therefore, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom. When the righteous shall bear rule upon their rising from the dead, when also the creation, having been renovated and set free, shall fructify with an abundance of all kinds of food from the dew of heaven and from the fertility of the earth. And this is where it gets interesting. As the elders who saw John, the disciple of the Lord, related that they had heard from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to these times and say. So what he's about to write was something that Papias wrote that he heard from the disciple John, the disciple who John supposedly heard from Jesus. Well, this is interesting. I'm not going to say that he did. We can't say that he did. We don't know that he did. It's not in the Bible. But it's just something interesting that this is like a fourth-hand, technically, supposedly, words from Jesus about the millennial kingdom. And he writes, The days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and in each branch 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig 10,000 shoots, and in each one of the shoots 10,000 clusters, and in every one of the clusters 10,000 grapes. And every grape, when pressed, will give five and twenty metrites of wine. And when any one of the saints shall lay hold of a cluster, another shall cry out, I am a better cluster, take me. Bless the Lord through me. In like manner the Lord declared that a grain of wheat would produce 10,000 ears, and that every ear should have 10,000 grains, and every grain would yield 10,000 pounds of clear, pure, fine flour, and that all other fruit-bearing trees and seeds and grass would produce in similar proportions, and that all animals feeding only on the productions of the earth should in those days become peaceful and harmonious among each other and be in perfect subjection to men. And then he just writes that, the, and these things are borne witness to in writings by Papias, the hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp in his fourth book. So it's just interesting that that supposedly came from Jesus, but don't take that as the Bible. It's not. Okay. Uh, so uh, Arrhenius and Papias both interpret that whole passage about being about the k kingdom age. And then Irenaeus, Irenaeus also quotes Isaiah 11 and 65 um, as pertaining to the millennial age. And I would go into it, but I just, we don't have time. <laughs> okay, moving on. The next one, anthropology, study of man, but from a biblical pers perspective, right? Anthropology has some weird stuff nowadays, but this is biblical anthropology. Um, basically, the study of the nature of sin and grace, right? So, um, Later on, mid-4th century now, we're talking about, um, and there arose a debate about the nature of sin and grace between a British, a British monk named Pelagius and uh, someone you've probably heard of, St. Augustine, uh, the Bishop of Hippo. Uh, so basically, Pelagius, he disagreed sharply with Augustine. Um, he said that man is born neutral with the ability to choose good or evil. 
In other words, there was no original sin. A, sinf- a sinless life is possible, he said. Um, God's grace was helpful in overcoming evil, but not necessary for salvation. Um, and he also wrote, um, oh no, so, but, um, and much, so much of his writings have been lost, but um, they actually survive as quotations from his opponents and from Augustine, who quotes him and then says, this is why that's not true. So Augustine, um, basically, in complete contrast, says that prior to the fall, man was of natural perfection, but uh, in which he enjoyed the image of God in wisdom, holiness, and immortality. But after the fall, man passed into a state where he was unable not to sin, now inclined toward evil and no longer free. Um, Quoting Romans 5.12, saying that sinful nature was passed on to the human race. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, Augustine also taught that God's grace is essential to rescue man from their state of total depravity. Um, Augustine termed the phrase irresistible grace, which, uh, as he puts it, so changes the will that man voluntarily chooses that which is good. And, um, and he says that this, this grace is necessary for the ability to believe the gospel. It's actually the origins of Calvinism in that. And Calvin himself considered himself, Calvin considered himself to be an Augustinian. A lot of that comes from Augustine. Phew, okay, so that's the first part. We just talked about the, the bunch of different areas of theology as these first people wrote about it. It's really interesting, really cool stuff. Um, but as we get to this period in history, the canon of the New Testament scripture wasn't even defined yet. They had these letters. They had the letters from Paul and um, from James and all these letters, but they hadn't decided what was the word of God and what was just a letter from a guy who knew a lot about the Bible. Um, so there, the question is, like, why weren't these writings included as part of that scripture, right, or as, crude, as part of the canon? canon of scripture. And one of the reasons is they didn't really offer anything new. All of it's already in like Paul's letters. Um, And there's also a noticeable inferiority in the quality of the writing. It's not, it's not as intellectual. I don't know. It's not, it's not as um, capturing, I guess. Um, So there were three really main determining factors in what was chosen to go into the canon of scripture. Um, Basically, number one is the self-authenticating quality of the words or its ability to convert the hearts of wandering minds. Um, Justin Martyr, for example, uh, he was a student of philosophy. Um, He went from being a Stoic to a Pythagorean to a Platonist, but it wasn't until reading through Scripture that his mind was fully captured by the truth, the Gospels, and he became a Christian. Um, And that was just the case for many wandering souls in this time, right? In the early days... Um, just as it was probably true for a lot of us, right? Like you hear the gospel and it's uh, it, the spirit talks to you, right? It's it's not just another book. Um, number two, the other determining factor: uh, the books had to also have been regularly used in Christian worship. So what they would do, uh, much like we do, uh, is they read the letters. So like we know, Paul was. Paul told his readers, read this letter to everyone in the church, right? That was a common practice at the beginning. Um, in fact, uh, so in Justin Martyr's first, first Apology, chapter 67, he talks about the flow of a Sunday service, um, which included reading these letters. And um, 
not just the, they didn't actually just read the Apostles' letter. They also read like Polycarp and uh, and Clement and Ignatius, right? Um, so, so that's two now. So the third criteria then was that it had to be authored by an apostle or someone directly affected by an apostle. That was kind of the determining factor to rule out some of these guys. Um, but so that doesn't mean they're not valuable, right? So the, the writings of the Apostolic Fathers are very interesting. Um, and even though they're not included in Scripture, they kind of act as a link between the New Testament writers and what came after that, right? The apologists and things like that, because they, they offer tons of quotes of the New Testament. So it's like a, it's another generation of quoting this Scripture, um, manuscripts and, and having all those quotes, um, so you, you might consider it an extra, an extra biblical confirmation of the validity of the New Testament writings. Because there are just thousands of pages written by these guys that quote, affirm, and acknowledge much of what is written in the present-day canon of New Testament scripture. Um, but also, so on the other hand, what came up right around this time was a guy named Marcion of Sinope, uh, who was having trouble reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. You may have heard that kind of idea, right? All oh, the wrath of God, and he's not the same in the Old Testament. Well, this guy took it way too far. Um, he considered the God of the Old Testament to be evil and vengeful, um, and he distinguished the merciful God of the New Testament from the God of the Old Testament. So he said that Jesus was not the Messiah, but was the merciful God of the New Testament who rejected the Old Testament, which is why the Jews crucified him. Um, uh, he, he considered himself a follower of Paul, um, and he considered Galatians to be like the foundational truth of the gospel. Um, but then he even said that that was corrupted by mingling the gospel with the law. Um, and so he rejected everything, including the Old Testament, except for 10 of Paul's epistles and an edited version of Luke, which actually later became known as the Gospel of Marcion. Well, this guy was excommunicated in, excommunicated in 144. Um, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus... Uh, Tertullian, they all denounced him as a heretic. Um, Irenaeus in Against Heresies, chapter 34, he quotes, um, in, in refuting Marcion, he, reviewed, he, he quotes Matthew 5, 17, and 18, which is Jesus saying, I have not come in to abolish the law, right, but to fulfill them. Um, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. He also quotes Romans 3.21, which says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So basically quoting those and rebuking Marcion. Um, But this event, this guy coming up, it really forced the church to decide what is the new canon, the canon of the New Testament. Um, So... um, What's kind of interesting is because this guy considered himself a follower of Paul and held so tightly to Paul that at this time, the epistles of Paul were called into question. There was a a question of, should we include Paul because they're so tightly coupled with this heretic? Um, But of course, obviously, they eventually decided, no, it's too important. We can't leave it out. Um, so, um, So after that, we have um, the Muratorian, 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 another weird word that I can't pronounce, the Muratorian canon, um, which was 
really close to what we have now. This came up in around uh, circa 175. Um, it's actually named after the guy who discovered it in 1740. Um, but this one, this canon included everything except for Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, and First John. Um, so that's like the closest thing we get to our current canon as far back as that. Um, the, the current canon was first noted in a letter, and actually an Easter letter, written by a guy named Athanasius, who's really important, we'll talk about him more later, but um, in 367. So that's when, that's the first mention of our current canon of scripture, is 367. Um, and then that canon was affirmed by the Council of Carthage in 397. Um, so that's, that's how your scripture came about. Interesting, right? Um, now we go into heresies. So the heresies really started popping up. Um, becoming more of a problem, uh, but how the church reacted to these heresies and moved past them is one of the most important topics of the early church. Uh, so we're going to take quite a bit of time going into the heresies and the responses to them from the councils and the creeds. Um, so Marcion and his teaching, that was one. Um, he wanted to chop up scripture into a few books, few just a few remaining books, but um, then this other guy came along, Montanus, Montanus, um, he kind of revealed an opposite problem. Basically, he arrived on the scene in mid-2nd century, and uh, Montanus recognized that the church at this point had finished its honeymoon phase and was now being secularized by the world. So he wanted to call the church back to a higher standard and a greater discipline, which is good, but he went too far. Uh, he basically claimed that he and his two prophetesses were God-given instruments of new revelation by the Spirit, and they would speak in a state of ecstasy as though their personalities were suspended by the, while the paraclete spoke in them. Paraclete uh, is the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, so his doctrine stated that not only had the Old Testament period passed, but also the revelation of Jesus and the apostles was old news as well, and the Spirit could override important messages from the gospel, thus removing Christ from the central message. Uh, so, not great. Um, Another one, Gnosticism, big one. Um, basically, Gnosticism just means having knowledge and uh, built a lot on Greek philosophy. Uh, so by this time, the, the Christianity had spread to Greece, right? Greek philosophers were there. And now you have Greek, Greek philosophy mixing with theology. <clears throat> and... Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And emphasizing knowledge over the teachings and authority of the church. Uh, so basically, they taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. Thus, the divine God could not have created the evil material world. Um, they described God in terms of emanations. So something like uh, in the radiance of God's glory, there are these supernatural powers that emanate from God um, and are they're part of God, but they're inferior and each inferior power emanates another inferior power until one emanation is still powerful enough to create, but silly enough not to know that creating is wrong. Uh, so they say that the ultimate deity sent one of these inferior powers in the form of the Christ, um, but the divine could still have no contact with matter or be capable of suffering. So there came these two worlds of thought around Jesus and... Um, Basically, they said, so Jesus could not have come in human form. He only appeared human and appeared to suffer. 
Um, and they kind of explained it like a hallucination. Um, either that or the divine Lagos came upon the human Jesus at his baptism and departed prior to his crucifixion. Um, weird stuff. Uh, it taught that salvation is knowing the truth, but that knowledge is only imparted on the spiritually initiated. Um, and salvation is attained by avoiding contamination with matter. We have these a couple of things popping up already, these weird things, and the church had to react to it. One of the first ways they reacted was um, a rule of faith. Is They called it the rule of faith, um, which is basically a statement of belief that guarded against allowing the heresies into the church um, and, um, and continue along like, and go further. They wanted to stop it as soon as they could, right? And then, so the rule of faith was kind of the, the precursor to the Apostles' Creed, um, the oldest form of the Apostles' Creed is known as the Old Roman form or Old Roman creed or Old Roman symbol. I don't know why it's called so many different names, but, um, but it came up and it was the official rebuttal to Gnosticism. And it said, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Christ Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who under Pontius Pilate was crucified and buried, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. Uh, that's the old Roman form. Um, we see Irenaeus using a very similar um, phraseology in, against heresies in, chapter, in Book 1, Chapter 10. Um, he says, uh, she, that is the church, believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them. So that the, the clause that he added onto there, maker of heaven and earth, was actually later added and is now what is known as, in what is known as the Apostles' Creed. Um, but we see, here, we see in the Creed two very specific rebuttals to Gnosticism. Um, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, obviously it refutes, the, it says the created world is not evil, but was created by God and was good when God created it. Christ Jesus, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, was crucified and buried, buried, right? Jesus was fully human, capable of suffering and death. Um, and then, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It also rejects Marcion, saying that the God that we believe in is the God of the Old Testament who created everything. What is noticeably absent from the Creed, though, is any real declaration about the nature of the Trinity or the oneness of the Godhead, which leads to... The debate between the debate about Trinitarianism, ancient Trinitarianism, it became a major point of contention in the early church. Um, the discussion of the Trinity in the early fourth century became like the hot button issue. They were torn between two seemingly contradictory truths, basically the unity of God and the deity of Christ. Um, and so multiple schools of thought, heresies popped up. Uh, the first one was monarchianism. Um, which stressed the unity of God at the expense of Jesus' deity. Uh, they described the Logos as being an impersonal power that existed in God the Father analogous to human reason in man and exists in all men but was especially operative in Jesus. So Jesus wasn't really considered part of the Godhead. Um, and then another form of monarchianism was modalistic monarchianism, which was the more popular one. Um, basically, he stressed that God is one God, who manifested himself as Father, and then at other times as the Son, and other times as the Holy Spirit. Um, and so it, it didn't really dif differentiate the three persons. It was actually, like one quote is the, 
the father became his own son in that idea. Another weird one. Um, okay, another heresy that came up, Arianism. And actually, Chris talked about this a couple weeks ago in his discussion about uh, when he was going through Proverbs. But um, Arianism was a really big, really popular one. Um, basically, a view of a man named Arius who tried to argue that Jesus wasn't actually God but was only approximately a deity and instead was, in fact, the first of the created beings. Uh, yeah, this, it made Christianity easier, under, easier to understand, so it became popular. Um, so he stressed that God is one, so Jesus can't be God. Uh, instead, Jesus was the first of the created beings and was then used by God to create everything else, including the Holy Spirit. Well, he was strongly opposed by this other guy, Athanasius, um, we brought up a little while ago. Um, and in Athanasius's deposition of Arius, um, speaking of Arius and his followers, he wrote, Now there are gone forth in the diocese, at this time, certain lawless men, enemies of Christ, teaching an apostasy, which one may justly suspect and designate as a forerunner of Antichrist. So that's how Athanasius referred to Arius and his followers. A little harsh. Not, not harsh. True. But on the, directly to the point. Um, so here we have, uh, I'm going to go through a summary of some of the things Arius believed and how Athanasius uh, responded to them and said, this is why that's not true. Because it's really cool, because Athanasius goes through the whole thing. So he quotes, so these are actually quotes from Athanasius's deposition of Arius, where he is quoting Arius and then responding to it. So one thing that Arius was known for saying, God was not always a father. The word of God was not always, but originated from the things that were not. And he simply points to John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Um, number two, Arius said the son is a creature and a work. Well, he points to John 3.16, right? He's for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He also points to Colossians 1.16, which says, uh, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then Athanasius writes, How can he be one of those things which were made by himself? Or how can he be the only begotten when, according to them, he's counted as one among the rest, since he is himself a creature and a work? Another thing Arius says, neither is he like in essence to the Father, neither is he the true and natural word of the Father, neither is he his true wisdom, but he is one of the things made and created. And for that, Athanasius looks at Hebrews 1.3, which says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for his sins, he sat down to the right hand of the majesty on high. So basically, Jesus is the perfect image and brightness of the Father. He also points to John 14, 9 and 10. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Right? Um, another thing Arius said, and the word is foreign from the essence of the Father and is alien and separated therefrom. Um, the word is foreign from the Father and essence of the Father and alien separated therefrom. How the word... Okay, so Athanasius, he looks at Hebrews 13.8, says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, and then he quotes, uh, he writes, And if the Son is the word and wisdom of God, how was there a time when he was not? It is the same as if they should say that God was once without word and without wisdom. Burn, dude. And the Father, okay, another thing he says, And the Father cannot be described by the Son, for the word does not know the Father perfectly and accurately, neither can he see him perfectly. 
And again, just quoting John 10, 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Athanasius really took it to him. Um, but so this debate was going on right in the middle of the fourth century. And uh, this is when Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity. This was in, on October 28th, 312. And at that point, the age of the Christian Roman Empire began and it became Constantine's goal to unite the Roman Empire under the banner of Christianity. Uh, but the debate about the Trinity was making this difficult. Um, uh, it was really become a big thing. The debate between Arius and Athanasius eventually led to riots in the streets of Alexandria. Um, so Constantine called the Council of Nicaea, which was a meeting of around like 300 bishops. Um, and their goal was to agree on the questions of the Trinity once and for all. Um, so in developing a statement of faith, the debates went on for days, especially around one word, the word um, homoousian, the Greek word meaning of one substance, which is a phrase in the Nicene Creed, which eventually made it into the Nicene Creed because Constantine got impatient, intervened, and demanded that it got adopted. Um, but after the council concluded, a controversy surrounding this term continued, um, uh, and it wasn't until the Council of Constantinople in 83-81, which is just a few years later, they affirmed it, said, no, it stays. Um, also at the Council of Constantinople, um, they decided that the original creed lacked any statement about the Holy Spirit um, and also being worshipped and glorified with the Father and Son, so uh, they added one. And so at that point, what we know as the Nicene Creed now was firmly created, um, which I think I'm running low on time, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, um, but it is awesome. So you should read the Nicene Creed. Um, so the Trinity debate obviously was closely related to Christology, the study of Christ and his position within the Godhead. Um, so um, the Nicene Creed was incredibly important as a step toward establishing the Orthodox Christianity, but um, while it clearly, clearly states that God is one, and uh, Jesus is God, it doesn't really attempt to explain how Jesus could be both very God of very God and born of the Virgin Mary, which are quotes from the Nicene Creed. Um, and, and crucified, or in other words, human. So, which allowed the debate and uh, further heresies to arise. So, um, before the Council of Nicaea, we had a few um, heresies. The Docetists denied Jesus' humanity, the Ebionites denied his deity, Arian uh, reduced his deity. Um, after the Council of Nicaea, we have three more that pop up. Apollinarius, uh, he reduced his humanity. Um, Nestorians, they denied the union of the two natures. And the Eutychians emphasized only one nature. Um, so first, Apollinarius, uh, he was kind of, he was more focused on psychology um, and he wrote that human nature embraced the body and soul. The divine word, Lagos, displaced the animating and rational soul of the human body of Jesus, creating a unity of nature between the word and his body. Uh, yeah, so one, in, he writes, one enfleshed nature of the divine word. He couldn't accept that Christ could be equal to God, but have a human mind, so he must not be fully human. Um, so he, in doing that, he reduced the human nature of Jesus to something less than human. And he was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Nestorius came up. He sought to defend Christ's deity against Arianism, 
But he viewed Jesus as two persons, God and man, with no union between them. He argued that instead Christ joined two distinct natures, the human and the divine. Um, he also rejected the designation of Mary as the Theotokos, which is, means God-bearer, um, the mother of God. Um, and in his first sermon against the Theotokos, he uses scripture to explain that the, mad Jesus, the man Jesus could not be God because God was not born. Um, he writes, Mary, my friend, did not give birth to the Godhead. And he tries to use Hebrews 7.3 um, to, to defend that, which Hebrews 7.3, it says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Um, which is, it's taken out of context, because Hebrews 7 right there, he's talking about Melchizedek, and it's an analogy to Christ, not talking about Christ. Um, he also tries to use John 3, 6, uh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In that instance, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about being born again. Um, another quote of Nestorius, uh, rather, he formed out of the virgin a temple for God, the Lagos. Um, so he didn't explicitly deny the deity of Christ, but he emphasized his humanity. Um, another quote, he refused to attribute to the divine nature the human acts and sufferings and death of the man Jesus. Uh, so Jesus the man had a merged will with God the Father, but was not fully one. Um, and he wrote, I hold the natures apart, but unite the worship. And actually, he still has followers in Iraq, and Iran, and Syria, and India, and even in America today. Well, he was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. Then we have Eutychianism, uh, which came up in response to Nestorianism. And instead of being both divine and human, he said that Christ had only one nature, something new, a combination of the two, which was neither fully divine nor fully human, the human part being completely absorbed by the divine. And that was condemned at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Um, so we see here at these, each of these councils, the important part that they played, the resolution of each council, that at the Council of Nicaea, they determine that Christ is fully divine. At the Council of Constantinople, Christ is fully human. At the Council of Ephesus, Christ is a unified person. And at the Council of Chalcedon, Christ is both human and divine in one person. And that really, at the Council of Chalcedon, is where they solidified Christology. Again, I have the whole creed here. I don't think I have time to read it. I'll just read the first part here. It says, Following then the Holy Fathers... We all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the self-same perfect in Godhead. Uh, the self-same, by the way, just means exactly the same. I had to look that up. Uh, so exactly the same, perfect in Godhead. The self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. The self-same of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead. The self-same coessential with us according to the manhood, like us in all things sin apart, before the ages, begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days, the selfsame for us as for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin, Theotokos as to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. So right here we see, against Arius, Jesus was truly God. Against Apollinarius, Jesus was truly man. Against Eutychus, Jesus' deity and humanity were not changed into something else. And against Nestorius, Jesus was born, and Jesus was not divided, but was one person. And so that creed 
hedged off the heresy. Okay. Whew. So, the next century. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> summary. Here we go. <laughs> the next century, it really it geared up for the, human, the, for the Middle Ages. Um, Roman history, background. So, by this time, the Roman Empire had been split, reunited by Constantine, and then split again. There was the Western Empire with its capital in Rome, and the Eastern Empire with its capital in Constantinople. Um, we have Leo, the Bishop of Rome, or the first Pope, not the first Pope, but um, he was Pope, Pope Leo I, Bishop of Rome, who was immensely important to church history, especially Catholic church history, um, because in 452, Attila the Hun attacked this weak Roman Empire in Italy, and Leo was there to negotiate with Attila to cease his, to cease his attack on Rome and even got him to leave Italy. Um, so he kind of took a political role there. And then three years later, uh, and this is like the first time a pope was taking a political role. Um, three years later, the Vandals, the Scandinavians, became the new enemy. And by this time, Rome was just nowhere near the power it once was. In fact, it was basically in shambles. Um, the Vandals marched on Rome without any resistance, set to burn the city. But again, Leo was there to negotiate slash beg for mercy. Um, he convinced... Gesserick, the leader of the Vandals, to spare the city in exchange for money. Uh, Gesserick agreed, and the Vandals spent the next 14 days looting every palace, home, and church in Rome. When it was all over, the city rejoiced that their lives and the city had been spared a massacre, and all the credit was given to Leo. And so thus was the birth of the political rule of the church. Later on, 527, Emperor Justinian of the East who was like Constantine in that he was a converted Christian. He came up, he, but um, he blended Roman law, Christian faith, Greek philosophy, uh, with a pinch of the Orient. And uh, he considered himself to be equally a Roman emperor and a Christian emperor, um, which created a blurred line between the society of the Roman Empire and the Christian church. Um, in fact, Justinian, Justinian believed that in a Christian society, the church basically dissolves. And so thus, secular Christianity became very prevalent. Um, so then, after that, we have the end of the Christian Roman Empire. Um, basically, it's generally understood that the Christian Roman Empire ended in the West with the silent takeover of Rome by the German barbarians in 476. Um, there was no fight, just a political change of power. Um, the next hundred years was wrought with arguments between the Eastern and Western churches, especially over ecclesiolog ecclesiological issues. Rome itself was battered by floods, wars, and eventually broken by the plague. Um, in 590, the people were in anguish. The Pope had died, and the papacy remained vacant for six months until a monk named Gregory was forced into the position. He didn't want the job. He was a mess himself after just witnessing so much death and misery. Um, but he reluctantly took the job and called for three days of praying and singing hymns in the streets, and soon, not immediately, but soon enough after the death, the plague, the effects of the plague kind of subsided. And many people looked at this and attributed the end of the suffering to Gregory and moreover Christianity, and thus Christian Europe and the Christian Middle Ages began. Cue Chris for next month. Oh my gosh, so much. Okay, I went long, and there's so much that we didn't even get to. Uh, there's guys we didn't even talk about. Augustine barely touched Augustine. There's this guy, Origen of Alexandria, really smart dude, wrote a ton of stuff. Um, Tertullian, didn't even talk about Tertullian, but um, really, I want to just get to what did all these people have in common, especially the church fathers, the apologists, the apostolic fathers, 
but also the heretics, right? They were all seeking to know God and understand his word and his plan for us, right? But what's the difference between those who we now know as church fathers and those we now know as heretics? There are, well, so there are difficult questions that we uh, run into when we try to explain something that we can't comprehend. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. God created us with this curiosity and fascination and a desire to learn and study more about him. Uh, Proverbs 25.2, it is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Um, which is actually, it's exactly what we're doing tonight, right? We're studying theology. It's what we're doing in the theology series in general. Uh, that's what we do every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night when we come to hear the word of God. We want to know more about him, understand him, right? The danger arises when you go beyond the word of God and in arrogance try to fix what doesn't really seem to be described well enough by God. Um, so just a little warning, right? Don't allow your hubris to deceive you into thinking that you've figured out the answer to a mystery that has been debated by brilliant, God-fearing, and God-honoring men for thousands of years. And that wisdom, by the way, can extend in other areas of your life, right? Even though you may be a master in your field, you should never come to a place of thinking that there's nothing for you left to learn. By the way, speaking of wisdom, the next two nights, we're going to be telling our little ones in VBS about wisdom and how to apply wisdom in your life. So after the barbecue, if you want to hang out and help us set up, please stay and help us because there's a lot to do. All right, let's pray. <laughs> oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, just again for your word, for, um, for these men who uh, just devoted their lives to studying you and then sharing it with us. Um, Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in a way that we can partially understand, and we thank you, Lord, that you are greater than we can understand. Uh, 